Again, I read the great words which are to be found recorded in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the third chapter, beginning at verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner men, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Now we are examining this great prayer, and especially this petition which the Apostle here offers, namely that the Ephesians and all other Christians in all places and at all times may come with all saints to comprehend and to know this love of Christ which passeth knowledge. We have considered what the Apostle actually says, his terms, his definitions. We have to be precise as he was precise in order that we may gather some impression as to what is truly possible for us as Christian people here in this world and in this present life. Now we've done that, and we have been at great pains particularly to emphasize the character, the nature of this knowledge of this love which is possible to us. It's not only a conceptual knowledge. We can not only comprehend or apprehend it, but we can know it. Experimental knowledge. We indicated last Sunday that the Apostle obviously, deliberately uses the two separate terms in order that that great truth might come out. We are to apprehend it with our minds as we see it revealed in the Scriptures, and we are to meditate upon it. But beyond that, and above that, we are to know it in an immediate and in a direct sense. We are to know it in this way, that the Lord himself should tell us that, and manifest it to us, personally, directly, and immediately. You have to put that content into this great word, know and then we ended last Sunday morning by showing how this is not a teaching confined to this particular paragraph, but that it is to be found elsewhere in the scripture as well. And then I ended by giving you some examples out of the subsequent history of the church, showing how whatever the particular doctrinal position that uh, God's people might hold, they share this experience in common. I gave you the experience of an Arminian. I gave you the experience of one who took the Calvinistic view of doctrine. 
And yet, you see, the two men were saying precisely the same thing. And I could have given you much other evidence. I shall give you a little more this morning. Now, all this has brought us to this position, that we see it stated and taught here clearly. We see that uh, brought out and verified subsequently in the, the life and the history of the Christian church. Now then, having done that, we come to what is perhaps uh, of greatest importance for us in a practical and in an immediate sense. We come to the point at which we obviously must ask a question. And the question is a very simple one and a very obvious one. Where are we? How do we measure up to this? Here is the apostle praying this prayer for these Ephesians. Probably most of them were slaves, as most of those first Christians were. And yet he prays this for them, every one of them. And he wants them to know this with all saints, everyone. Now, there is nothing which is more terrible than just to consider something like this without applying it. There is a current notion that you can teach the scriptures in an objective manner without applying them. That is a terrible thing to do. We are not to have some intellectual acquaintance with these things as possibilities. They're meant to be practical. We are meant to know them. So I ask at this moment, where are we as we read something like this? Are we comprehending this breadth and length and depth and height? Do we know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge? Now, I think if we were able to examine ourselves one by one, or if I were able to question and to catechize you all, I think we should discover that there would be a great variation, that there would be various groups. Let me suggest to you the kind of result that we might very well discover. I quoted to you last Sunday morning from the life and experience of a, a saintly man called Edward Payson, a godly, saintly young minister who lived in the United States in the last century. Now, here I think I can put before you in a very convenient way the kind of result that we would find probably in this congregation if we examined ourselves in terms of this knowledge. Now, Payson puts it like this. He says, suppose professors of religion to be arranged in different concentric circles around Christ as their common center. Some value the presence of their Savior so highly that they cannot bear to be at any remove from him. Even their work they will bring up and do it in the light of his countenance and while engaged in it, will be seen constantly raising their eyes to him as if fearful of losing one beam of his light. There is the innermost circle. Those who live for him and even do their work in his presence and keep on lifting up their eyes to him, they're afraid of losing even a beam of his love. Now then, there's a circle a little bit outside that others who to be sure would not be content to live out of his presence, 
are yet less wholly absorbed by it than these, and may be seen a little farther off, engaged here and there in their various callings, their eyes generally upon their work, but often looking up for the light which they love. You see, these don't take their work right into its presence. They spend perhaps most of their time or a good deal of it at their work and occasionally look to him. Now then come to a third class. A third class beyond these, still further away in these concentric circles, but yet within the life-giving rays includes a doubtful multitude, many of whom are so much engaged in their worldly schemes that they may be seen standing sideways to Christ, looking mostly the other way, and only now and then turning their faces towards the light. And yet farther out, among the last scattered rays, so distant that it is often doubtful whether they come at all within their influence, is a mixed assemblage of busy ones, some with their backs wholly turned upon the sun, and most of them so careful and troubled about their many things as to spare but little time for their Savior. Now, I believe that that's a very just and a very accurate analysis. And there are Christian people who are to be found in those various circles, in those various positions. You see, it's possible to be in this last circle that he describes, still within the bounds of the rays of his love, and yet it's very doubtful at times, and yet it's true, they are Christians, but they seem to spend most of their time, he says, with their backs turned toward him, and very, very occasionally they turn round and seek him and look at him. And there are all the gradations possible between that and this innermost circle of those to whom Christ is everything and who can say with the Apostle Paul, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, I read, I read that to you. Because it does seem to me to help us to examine ourselves and to see which of those groups we belong to. Now let us make this perfectly clear. All this is addressed to Christians. Still Christians, you see. It has nothing to do with people who are not Christians. It is all a matter of the relationship of those who have already believed as these Ephesians had and who had experienced much as these people had but who still, the Apostle feels, don't know this love of Christ, and therefore he's praying for them without ceasing that they may come to know it. Payson goes on to say something which is, I think, profoundly true. He says, the reason why the men of the world think so little of Christ is that they do not look at him. Their backs being turned to the sun, they can see only their own shadows and are therefore wholly taken up with themselves, while the true disciple, looking only upward, sees nothing but his Savior, and learns to forget himself. Now there is the whole key, of course, 
to the Christian life and Christian experience. There's only one way to get rid of self, and that is to look at Christ. You don't get rid of self by going into a monastery and becoming a monk. You don't get it by being a hermit on top of a mountain or by living on a lonely island all on your own. You can be as full of self as you ever were. There's only one way to lose self, and that is to love another and to be lost in him. How true it is, as Payson puts it. See, if you've got your back to the sun, you're looking at your own shadow the whole time. And you're thinking about yourself and looking at yourself and concerned about yourself. There's only one thing to do. Turn round and look to the sun. And you'll even forget yourself altogether. Well, now then, there, I say, are these circles. And there is nothing more vital than for us to examine ourselves in this way. Now, let me supplement this by giving you another statement again. Now I go this time to another saintly man of God, this time one who lived in Scotland and who died just about 1851 at a very early age. A man again who took the same doctrinal view as, as uh, Edward Payson. I'm saying this, you see, because there are some people who seem to think that these intimate experiences of the Lord Jesus Christ are only to be found among certain people who don't know much about doctrine and who are full of um, vague, mystical, and loose notions and ideas. Here is a man who, like Edward Payson, was a man who was characterized by his fondness for doctrine and theology and learning and understanding and was to boot a brilliant philosopher and thinker. I'm referring to a man whose name was Hewitson. W.H. Hewitson. He's not as well known as he should be, but he's the sort of man you put into the same category as Robert Murray McChain. He lived at the same time and they knew one another. Now listen to him putting it like this. Don't you think, says the saintly Hewitson, that in the case of many Christians, regeneration is followed by a considerable period of not darkness, but obscurity, such as that of the understanding in childhood, unfitting the soul to take in a whole Christ and consequently to enjoy a perfect peace. Such Christians live far below their privileges as accredited children of adoption, born to an inheritance not in themselves, but in Christ. How true it is. We can be Christians truly and regenerate, and yet be living as paupers, and knowing nothing about this glorious possibility. Here is a friend writing about Hewitson, and this is how he describes him. From the time that he was brought clearly to see Christ as his all in all, his soul was filled with Christ's glory as a present Savior and ever-living friend. His communion with him became more like that of one friend with another who are personally near than of a distant correspondence. His holy ambition was to follow the Lord fully. A blessing it is beyond every other, said Hewitson, to have an ear deaf to the world's music 
but all awake to the voice of him who is the chief among ten thousand and altogether lovely. Now there, you see, I am holding before you these practical experiences of these men, their experimental knowledge of these matters. Listen to Hewitson once more, and then I bring to an end my quotations. Blessed it is, says Hewitson, to be really in him. No awakened soul should stop short of a realization and experimental enjoyment of union with the Lord. No converted soul should rest satisfied till it think every thought and speak every word in communion with Jesus. This would seem to a carnal professor or to a child of God who is still to a great extent carnal a standard far too high. I wonder, is there anybody thinking that as I'm reading this? But to have a lower standard is to be ignorant of our standing in Christ, of what we have in him, of the closeness of our union with him, and of the character we should maintain to be in keeping with our profession of faith in his name. I cannot imagine anything putting it more clearly or better than that. Well, now then, I say, in the light of all this, the question is, where are we? Haven't you got a feeling that this is more or less the, the position of so many of us? We are like people who've been left a great fortune in a will, but we don't seem to realize it. It seems too good to be true. We've been so accustomed to poverty and to penury and to struggling to make both ends meet that though we are told that we've been left a fortune, we go on living as if nothing had happened at all. Or if I may vary the picture, we seem to be like this. We seem to be like people who've received an invitation to attend a great banquet. But there we are, standing out on the street, in the cold and in the rain, looking occasionally through the window at the bright lights within and all the wonderful things that have been prepared, and yet remaining on the street, saying, isn't it wonderful? Mustn't it be wonderful to be in there and to be enjoying all that? And we've nothing to do but to walk in through the door. But we remain outside in a kind of unbelief. We say the standard's too high. These things are impossible. Now, what can be more important, therefore, than that we should examine ourselves? Here is the New Testament teaching. Are we up to its level? Or let me ask a still more searching question. Are we up to the standard and the level of the Old Testament? You heard what the psalmist said. A day in thy courts is better than a thousand. He says, I would sooner be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Though I may be the chief men in the center amongst their joviality and all that they have, I'd sooner be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to be at the very center of that life. Is that true of us? Can we say that? 
Oh, let me put it once more. And this time I go to a man like Augustus Top Lady. You are familiar with his position again doctrinally. You see, it doesn't matter. We've been singing a hymn by Charles Wesley. Now here's a hymn by Top Lady. And Top Lady and the Wesleys, you remember, had such a controversy 200 years ago. But here they're saying the same thing. Object of my first desire, Jesus crucified for me, all to happiness aspire only to be found in thee. Thee to please and thee to know constitute my bliss below. Thee to, thee to see and thee to love constitute my bliss above. Lord, it is not life to live if thy presence thou deny. Lord, if thou thy presence give, it is no longer death to die. Source and giver of repose. Only from thy smile it flows. Peace and happiness are thine. Mine they are. If thou art mine, whilst I feel, whilst I feel thy love to me, not just to believe about it externally, whilst I feel thy love to me, every object teems with joy. May I ever walk with thee, for tis bliss, Without a lie, let me but thyself possess total sum of happiness. Real bliss I then shall prove, heaven below and heaven above. Now I say that we must face this question. Is that our position? Now there are many people who do not hesitate to say that all this is not only to a higher standard, as Hewitson imagines many Christians to say, but they would go further. They would say that all this is nothing but mysticism, that this is that kind of unhealthy state into which certain people have entered throughout the history of the church, where they suddenly turn in upon themselves and become selfish and self-centered and spend their time in feeling their spiritual pulse and enjoying experiences and, of course, are of no value at all to anybody. People who are not practical, who never do anything, but just to live on experiences, mysticism, unhealthy mysticism, they say. No, no. That isn't what we are meant to have. We are meant just to see the truth externally and to hold it by faith. And you must never talk about this immediate and direct experience and of loving Christ personally. All that, they say, suggests rather the fevered imagination. Not to say a condition which sometimes even crosses the borderline and becomes psychopathic. Now, there are many people who say that. There are many Christians who would say that. There are many evangelical Christians who would say that, and say that today. There seems to be a great discounting of feeling and of emotion. And they substitute for it a flabby sentimentalism. They're so afraid of the power of the Holy Spirit, and so afraid of certain excesses which you get in mysticism, sometimes 
and in certain people who attach much importance to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, they're so afraid of excess that they quench the Spirit and never have any personal knowledge of Christ. Indeed, they even go so far as to deny the possibility. Well, now, obviously, we must deal with that, because if we hold that view, we shall clearly never seek this knowledge about which the Apostle is speaking, and therefore we shall never have it. Therefore, what is our answer to this charge? Well, let me put it like this. There is, of course, a false mysticism. And you can read about it. You can read books on mysticism, and you'll find that they will introduce you to certain characters, to certain people who are generally called mystics, and there are undoubted aberrations in their lives a great deal that was very morbid and unhealthy. Now, there's no question about that. I am very, very ready to grant that. A healthy, morbid, introspective, purely selfish, impractical and useless mysticism. There is such a thing. But because certain people have been guilty of that, we should not allow ourselves to be blinded to that which is true, to the true mysticism, to the healthy mysticism, to the mysticism that is taught in the Bible itself. Now, this is something, of course, that happens in many, many realms. There are many people outside the Christian church today, and this is their only reason for it. They say, ah, yes. I knew a man who was a Christian and a member of a church, and he was an evil man. He was unkind to his wife and to his children. I'm having nothing to do with him. The whole of Christianity is dismissed because of one unworthy representative. Every Christian is agreed in saying that that's quite unintelligent to speak like that, and that it's monstrous. The argument you put up against people like that is this. What's your politics, you say? Well, the man may say, I'm a conservative. Very well, you say, I know a conservative who's a very bad man. Therefore, you shouldn't join the conservative party. If he says, I'm Labour, you can say exactly the same thing. They don't do it there. But they do it with respect to religion. Yes, but the tragedy is, I say, that when you come into the realm of the church, there are Christian people who use exactly that argument because of certain excesses in certain mystics they dismiss the whole thing. Now, the answer to that is this. The opposite to false mysticism is not a complete absence of mysticism. It is true mysticism. And therefore, I say that we must come back to the scripture. And we find that this is taught here. Here it is once and forever in this section that we are looking at together. And if ever there was a mystic, it was the Apostle Paul. There is true Christian mysticism. I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. I can do all things through Christ which dwelleth in me. I live yet not I. To me to live is Christ. Now that's pure Christian mysticism that I may know him. Why does he want to know him? Because he already knows him. It's because he's already known him, he wants to know him more. Uh, when Paul says there in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, 
You mustn't interpret that as saying, ah, the apostle says so far I haven't known him. I've only got an objective faith so far. But now I hope that one day I will get to know him. That isn't what he's saying. He does know him. It's because he knows him he wants to know him better. It's the cry of a lover for the loved one. He wants to spend the whole of his time with him. He wants to know him more perfectly and completely that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Well, there it is. It's in the writings of John, of course, everywhere. You see, even there, there is a false distinction sometimes drawn. You will often find people saying that Paul, of course, is logical and legal and doctrinal, that John is mystical. How pathetic we can be sometimes in our thinking. The one is as mystical as the other, and the other is as doctrinal as the first. But it's not only there. This is teaching which you find perhaps supremely in the words of our blessed Lord himself. You remember how in that 14th chapter of John, having told them that he's about to leave them, let not your hearts be troubled, you believe in God, believe in me also. But they were troubled because he was going to leave them. They'd been with him three years. They'd looked into his face. They'd seen him work his miracles. They'd heard his sermons. They could always ask him questions. But now he's going to leave them. And they say, how can we possibly go on and be happy without you? And you remember his answer, I will come unto you. I will manifest myself unto you. But, of course, the crucial phrase is this. You will find in the 16th chapter of John's Gospel, he even said this. It is expedient for you that I go away. It is a good thing for you that I am going to leave you and to go away from you in the form in which I am now with you. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I go away, I will send him unto you. Now, there is a statement that we've got to face. How can it be expedient for the disciples that he should leave them in the flesh and go away from them in the body? How can that be true? If it is not possible for the Christian to know him immediately and directly. Obviously that is the supreme blessing. To be with him in his presence and in his company. So what he's really saying is this. He says, after I have gone and I have baptized you with the Holy Ghost, I shall be more real to you than I am now. And of course the fact is that he was. They knew him much better after Pentecost than they knew him before. He was more real to them, more living to them, more vital to them afterwards than he was in the days of his flesh. It was literally fulfilled and verified. And as Peter tells those people on the day of Pentecost, the promise is unto you and to your children and to as many as are afar off. This is not something promised only to the apostles. The apostle Paul wasn't with them on that occasion, but he received it afterwards. He's here praying for these Ephesians and with all saints. The scripture, I say, is perfectly clear. It is expedient for us all that the Lord Jesus Christ is not amongst us in the flesh now. In the spirit he can be much more real and we can know him with an intimacy that the disciples and apostles did not enjoy when he was here in the days of his flesh. 
Well, let the Apostle John himself again put it for us and summarize it for us in that statement that we read at the very beginning. I am writing to you, says that man who would now become an old man, that you may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Why does he want them to enter into this fellowship? He doesn't merely want them to see their fellowship with him and the other apostles. They had already got that. He says, I want you to enter into the fellowship that we are enjoying with the Father and the Son. And why? Well, he says, this is my reason, that your joy may be full. He was an old man. He was about to die. And this is the thing he says he wants them to have above everything else, that when he's gone and all, he's the last of the apostles, so all the apostles will have gone. He says, I want your joy to be full. They've got the preliminary joy which any man has who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and who realizes that his sins are forgiven. They have that. He says, I want your joy to be full. No limit to it. It's this perfect bliss that Augustus Toplady speaks of. That's the thing he wants them to have. That is the thing that is possible to every Christian. This isn't a vague mysticism. Don't think of this, I say, in terms of those people who went away and put on camel hair shirts and did things of that kind. That's the false. This is something that's possible to all who truly believe the word of God and who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now then, there, I say, is the first part of the answer, that it is so patently and clearly the teaching of the Scripture itself. But let me deal with this other criticism about the practical aspect. We are living in a days, of course, when the practical is being not only emphasized but even glorified. We are in a day of activism and of activists. The world has never been so busy, and everything is thought of today in terms of busyness. And so the practical Christian man comes along and he says, Ah, of course, that kind of thing makes people just go and sit in their lonely rooms and wait for experience. They never do anything. They're not practical Christians. They're not doing things, not getting about and being busy. Now, that's the argument that is often brought. And, of course, it is an argument that is based on nothing but sheer ignorance, not only of the Scriptures, but of church history. For the fact is, my friends, that the men who have been most busy in the service of their Lord and Master in the long history of the church have always been those who have known him best and who have rejoiced most of all in his love. Now, let me start with a supreme example. What was it that made the Lord Jesus Christ himself do all that he did? Well, he tells us, it was that he might glorify his Father. It was that that brought him from heaven to earth. It was that that made him endure the contradiction of sinners against himself. It was that which took him to the cross. He says, therefore, in his high priestly prayer, recorded in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, I have glorified thee and thy name on the earth. 
It was his one motive. It was his love to God and God's love to him that made him do it all. There, I say, is the supreme case, the supreme example. But look at it as you find it subsequently in the lives of his people. Do you remember those disciples, Peter especially, who had been so nervous and so cowardly, so afraid of being put to death that he even denied his Lord? You remember what happened to him after the Holy Ghost had come upon him and he really knew this love. The officials, the authorities, command him to stop preaching and he looks at them and says, we cannot but speak. I have no choice, says Peter. We cannot but speak of the things which we have seen and have heard. I know this love of Christ. He says, I must tell people about it. Well, Paul puts it like that. He says, the love of Christ constraineth me. I can't help myself. It's Christ's love that is pressing me and urging me. There was never a more busy or active man than this great apostle. And it was not because he was an active man by nature. I don't believe he was for a moment. He was much more of a contemplative. But the love of Christ sends him on and he can't refrain whatever may be happening. Whether it's bonds or imprisonment, he must go and fulfill this ministry and tell the whole world about the love of God in Christ Jesus. But it's not confined to the apostles. You remember the story, don't you, of Count Zinzendorf, some of whose hymns we have translated in these hymn books? There he is looking at that picture of the crucified Christ, and he says, Thou hast done that for me, what can I do for thee? That's what set him going. He was the founder of foreign mission work. In a sense, Count Zinzendorf and the Moravian Brethren, don't forget that they started it 50 years at least before it was started by the London and Church Missionary Societies and others. There's the motive. Thou hast done this for me. The love of Christ drives him, sends him out, and all others with him. There is nothing that is more notable as you read the, biog the autobiography, the diaries, or the biography of a man like George Whitfield. It was his consciousness of the love of Christ. And he knew it, and you will always find that he says, and others say about him, it was always after he had had some exceptional experience of this love of Christ to him that he was given unusual enlargement and liberty in his preaching. And men and women were broken down and melted before his holy eloquence and his display of the love of God in Christ Jesus. Well, there it is. We've been singing our hymn, Charles Wesley knew it equally. Let me love them, he says, with a zeal like thine. Enlarge, inflame, and fill my heart with boundless charity divine. That's his need. That's the thing he realizes that's going to make him a true preacher. And nothing short of that will ever really suffice. This, I say, has been true of God's greatest servants in all ages, in all centuries, and in all places. You see, I feel that there is a very great danger confronting the church and Christian people today. 
Instead of realizing that the supreme need at the moment is this knowledge of the love of Christ, we, forgetting that, are organizing activities. We have made activity an end in itself. We say we must be getting busy. And in that kind of carnal way, we are doing, attempting to do things. But how little happens. It's not surprising we are taking it the wrong way around. You shouldn't work as a Christian simply because it's good and right for Christians to work. The motive is all important. We must work because of the love of Christ. Not because we decide to, or because people say, now you're converted, now then you get into this compartment, and we'll train you to do this, and you go out and do it, we'll give you a diploma. That's a tragedy, a travesty of the New Testament manner. Isn't that the whole trouble, and let me put it quite bluntly and frankly, with so many that go into the ministry? There have been men who have entered upon their training full of zeal and love and passion, and they've lost it. How? In the training. And yet the church today seems to be trying to train every single individual member. How do you think people did these things in past centuries? They didn't have these classes and diplomas then. What was it? Well, they were taught about this love of Christ and they became filled with it. And once a man's got the love of Christ in his heart, you needn't train him. He'll do it. It's there. The power, the constraint, the motive, everything is already there. It's just a lie to say that people who regard this as the supreme thing are just useless, unhealthy mystics. The greatest servants of God that adorn the life and the history of the Christian church have been men who have realized that this is the most important thing of all. And they've spent hours in prayer seeking his face, enjoying his love. And the man who knows this can do more in an hour than the other type of busy men can do in a century. God forbid that we should ever put activity as an end in itself. Let us realize that the motive must come first. And that the motive is ever the love of Christ. Well, I leave it at that this morning. But I want to leave it with you in the form of the question. Which I asked at the beginning. Which of the circles do you belong to? Are you pressing your way right to the center? Have you seen people doing it in the crowd when the queen or somebody is passing? They try to insinuate themselves to the front, to have a front line view. Or whatever it is, if it's a game, it doesn't matter what it is. So anxious are they, they press, they insinuate, they do things they shouldn't. They want to be in the front, they want to have that view. Are we pressing into the innermost circle? Are we seeking his face? Are we coveting this knowledge of his love? Well, God willing, I hope to try to deal next Sunday morning with a way in which we can do that. Here it is. The apostle prayed for every single member of the church at Ephesus that he might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge.
Oh, what a tragedy that we should be living in a kind of spiritual doldrums or as paupers on the cold street while the banqueting chamber is prepared and opened. Look at it. Look into it. Search it out in the scriptures. Read about the saints throughout the centuries. And you'll never be content until you're in the innermost circle and looking into his blessed face. Amen.